0: Welcome to another episode of Blindness No Barrier, a memoir of David Blythe. I am John Coleman, and this is the eighth of a series of interviews focusing on different aspects of the remarkable life of David Blythe. It will cover the key aspects of David's life that made him the person that he is, with a particular focus on the pivotal role David played in the development of human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. The episodes are produced by myself and edited by Robert Love. The music is by the very talented Jeff Irvin, and I appreciate the support of Blind Citizens Australia in the promotion of this memoir. Welcome, David. Thank you. We, At the end of the last episode, we finished up with your time as the President of the World Blind Union, um, which was obviously uh, a major milestone uh, in your involvement with the issues around disability rights, and um, also uh, the your achievements uh, during your lifetime. But also there's a parallel activity. You spoke a little bit about uh, your role uh, at the RVIB over that similar period, and perhaps going on a little bit after that. And I was wondering if you could explain to us what your role was, and um, something about your time at the RVIB. Yes, well
1: in 1986, um I applied for and was appointed as director of community services for the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind. Director of community services really was a rehabilitation come welfare role. Uh, I wanted to make it more well, more uh, rehabilitation, and uh, I was in that role for some five years, no four years, and uh, uh, we. Put a lot of emphasis into orientation and mobility. We established a training program for orientation and mobility workers, and that is still in operation. Um, I put a, a lot of time into training people into using computers. Uh, we bought the first computers for RVIB to train people how to use them, and uh, that was one of the roles. We looked at uh, other devices and braille teaching and things like that and then i went into I moved from the rehabilitation area to the employment area we amalgamated two areas the sheltered workshop and the employment training for open employment we amalgamated those together and i was instrumental in purchasing a new property at high street and having that renovated and we moved all the employment services to there and they were there until um, a couple of years ago when they got moved again but uh, I'd left by then so my main achievements I think was in the employment training area and the factory for supported workers I changed its name from Supported Employment uh, Centre to OVIB Enterprises to try and give it a more glitzy sort of a name uh, make it look more like mainstream to uh, more or less try and get it up in a more positive way rather than being looked at as a sheltered workshop Um, I don't think I actually succeeded in that to any great extent but I'm sure we did improve the conditions for the workers for quite a period of time the employment training area was the area where I put a lot of emphasis and that was uh, developed into um, quite good, we had good results, we, we got a lot of people jobs, particularly in the computer area, um, in using computers, uh, we put um, training programs in place uh, for during the day for employment training but also we had evening programs for people who just wanted to learn how to use a computer for general life. Um, general emailing, uh, web, and all that type of thing. So we put a, a fair bit of effort into those things as well.
0: David, I think you were alluding earlier to, in relation to your position uh, with the rehabilitation side of the RVIB, a attitudinal change that you were a part of where the role of a charity was moving from the idea of providing a a minimum standard of living for a person and starting to look at what it could do to promote the quality of the life of the person such that they could have a dignified and full life within the community.
1: Yes, uh, and that was part of the reason I was employed. Um, I believe that I was there to more or less push a harder rehabilitation line rather than the welfare line. Um, and uh, we were doing that in the extent of employment and uh, general living. We employed people to help people to move easily and more comfortably in their communities by using long cane travel. Uh, we didn't provide guide dog travel but uh, we had a relationship with guide dog organisations who did that. We, we did uh, general rehabilitation virtually training in the home we would send um, occupational therapists or O&M instructors to go out to the home and to deliver the service in the local area um, that had advantages it also had disadvantages because um, quite often when you left the uh, persons home the family took over again and just put the person in the corner and did everything for them again which was a bit of a difficulty so we did have some in-house training as well which we operated RVIB not as much as I would have liked but uh, we did have some and uh, that worked pretty well. The The idea that um, we had to provide the welfare services was more or less forced on us by government policy at the time, particularly the state government. Uh, in all the negotiations for funding there would be a, quite a significant amount of it would be on case management. and. Uh, case management had to provide services in varying roles and social, social services were one of them. Um, social workers were part of that operation, occupational therapists, there was emphasis on those professions which in some ways was should have been ancillary to what we were doing rather than being the, the major focus. But unfortunately the government funding was more the major focus that way. But so we had to work our way around that and then still provide the rehab services which we tried to do and eventually did by moving most of the employment stuff, all the employment stuff, over into a specialist area which was employment only. It included the shelter workshop as well as open training employment and general training programs.
0: In respect of your uh, responsibilities on the area of employment, you have spoken previously about this, but I know that a significant objective of yours was to improve the wages of the workers in the workshop. You mentioned that you achieved the movement of the workshop into more modern premises. Did you, did you really achieve what you hoped in terms of the wages?
1: No. Um, we tried several different programs that try and do that. Um, the general work was um, assembly work, mainly toys, which was very low end uh, as far as profit margin was concerned. Well, there was no profit margin really. We lost money heavily on those jobs. I did introduce a, uh, a company came to us, and we put in a cold room and had a pizza packing division. Uh, these were pizzas that were pre cooked no they weren't cooked they were raw and uh, they put in packages and sold through supermarkets and uh, people took them home and and did them it it worked for a while but it really didn't work out because we didn't have the uh, the necessary skills or the equipment to manage it and i think the company that was owned them and was employing us to do it uh, i think they went out of business anyway they were pretty shaky we had another group that came in that um, we set up an operation there where we were re- refilling the cartridges for computers and um, photocopying machines. That seemed to work pretty well for quite a while, um, and we were paying full award wages on all these jobs. Um, so, but um, that company eventually, um, there were three guys had it, and they had a bit of a blow up, and uh, so that. One guy took it over himself and then he took it away from us because it was a smaller operation and uh, he could do it somewhere else. It went out of business also. So we various enterprises we tried, where we tried to do uh, agreements, um, shared arrangements with uh, people who had good ideas and had the necessary skills and the marketing to sell their product, we wanted to go into deals with them. Uh, we did a few of those uh, and they worked for short periods of time we didn't never got anything that went permanently and uh, then I left after a period of time and it just went back to where it was and they, I think they even stopped doing that sort of thing we did um, a number of other jobs but none of them really paid well enough to pay decent wages to people and uh, so the factory was losing consistently all the time Management um, was pretty tolerant there but uh, I think eventually and it's since it's all gone now anyway and I I think even the employment training is scattered now around the various regions and it's not to the same extent it used to be.
0: You're talking about making significant changes within the organisation in Mm. your period as Director. Now, you've spoken about your relationship with Ted Peterson and it's clear that he offered you a lot of support and a lot of trust was that also the case with the board
1: yes um, because of Ted uh, I I got a good entree to the board um, and I think the fact that um, I I came to them with a lot of positive ideas uh, and was to prepare to try something did hold me in pretty good stead with the board Uh, there were some skeptics of course but um, the senior people that I dealt with, particularly at the committee level, the employment committee, they were very supportive, and uh, we we did innovate some programs. Uh, the cost of moving the factory from Mowbray Street, and those buildings were atrocious. I mean, they leaked in the winter time. They were cold, they were they were old, they were rat infested. Uh, it was awful, and uh, oh yeah, that was I think one of the issues that really I convinced the board to spend four million dollars to buy a property and uh, then to um, sell off half of that property and then spend another two million dollars to renovate the part we needed Uh, to give our workers decent working conditions and nice clean factory which was it uh, it, it wasn't air conditioned but it certainly was much better than what we had before. It was a building that was owned by Red Tulip Chocolate in High Street Paran, it had good access to transport, you had trams and trains nearby. These are issues that I think are important for blind people. Good public transport, Uh, it was a good facility to work in, and you know, I I think people responded. uh, And I think um, the board was good in that regard that they they did do that, I mean they could have just sat there and said no we're not going to spend that sort of money, but they did. Um, and uh, you know that's how it worked so um, that the board was as I say most of the board were very good there was a couple of the accountant guys were always sceptical about everything but they are anyway but the main people were were supportive but none of us were able to find that that um, that, uh, elusive uh, type of work that we could get in that blind people could do and and we could make it profitable we we tried many things in our woodworking area we were very successful in a lot of the stuff we made but we could never get it to a, an extent where we could make enough to make a profit for example we made a bed tray maya were selling a bed tray with four little legs that folded in they were bringing it in from thailand we looked at it and um, we produced a similar product and we went to Maya and we actually were able to match the price and uh, you know and we didn't get the job and uh, i asked them, by Meyer why he said well he said we've invested a lot of money on people overseas buying products for us but we'll put it in the catalogue well the catalogue would sell ten percent of what the on stores would sell mm. so we didn't get it and you know we were unlucky in some regards that we just couldn't break through in that area of the products we could make and make profitably. We just couldn't get the market for them. We had other products. Um, if, if we uh, if we could have got a market for them, we could have sold them. Like bunnies were an example. But you had to go down around and restock the shelves all the time. Well, we didn't have the staff to do that, and we didn't have the turnover. Um, but we had the product, and uh, but so we just couldn't break through in those areas. Uh, and I think if we had have had that um, marketing skill and maybe a little bit more foresight to uh, to go in a bit heavier and invest in some more machinery, we might have made it. But then again, we might. It's hard to know. Uh, Manufacturing is pretty rough in this country, and. Uh, and I'm afraid that a lot of our retailers don't, and wholesalers don't support our manufacturing industry. A classic example was that tray with Meyer. We could match that price. And they wouldn't have had to buy as much as they did at a the time. They could have just and uh, drip fed them you know as they needed it but no they decided to stay where they were and now I don't think that was a management decision up top I just think that was some buyers made a decision that oh, we got these people overseas doing these jobs for us so we've got to find work for them um, so you know we were unlucky in some regards but um, you know that's how it works.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So your position as director that um that takes us to the end of 2001. Now, that's also takes us to the end of when Ted Peterson was the CEO there. And I understand that you made a pitch to become the next CEO of the well, of the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind.
1: Uh, he retired in the mid-1990s. And the board then um, advertised the position of executive director. And an uh, employment company was uh, formed employment company um, advertised the position and Peter Evans and myself were the final two nominees and uh, Peter Evans got the job. Um, I I stayed on at RBIB in the rehabilitation area and it was under Peter that I went across to employment.
0: Now, in my interview with Euclid, he clearly believed that you were disadvantaged in your application for the CEO position because of your blindness, that it was perceived as just one step too far for an organisation to have a blind person in its senior position. Is that a view that you share?
1: Oh yes, it's quite uh, a common thing in Australia that um, none of the major agencies have ever given a, a, a blind person the opportunity to be their CEO. Um, It was clear when I stood against Peter I mean whether I was better than him or not is not the issue but it was quite clear the employment um, consultant told me he said the board would not appoint a blind person and uh, that is correct Uh, uh, all over the world blind people manage these type of organizations but in Australia we we just don't do it and uh, even to the extent today that uh, the present organization we have it has a policy that if a blind person stands for a position they must get an interview except in the case of a CEO well if that's not blatant discrimination I don't know what is but that's the the nature of the beast we have in this country that uh, our charity system does not see blind people as people capable of managing a major organization.
0: Do you think that it's a perception of the capacity of a blind person to do the requirements of the job. There's actually a belief that for some reason a blind person wouldn't be able to fulfil the requirements of the CEO. Or is it actually a perception problem that the organisation doesn't want a blind person as its senior figurehead because that conflicts with their other pitch that maybe in terms of fundraising, they need to show... A more dependent blind person, just to bring in the money. I'm
1: not too sure which way it is, because several of the major organisations in Australia have had blind people as their president of their board or chair of their board, um, but none of them have appointed a blind person to the role. You know, there's an old saying we used to say that um, they'd rather work with it, rather work for us than with us, and uh, I think there's a little bit of Truth in that saying that um, there's still a charity attitude is you're working for blind people to uh, you're not working with them to make that achievement.
0: However, um, in 2001, you do go on to become the CEO uh, of a blindness agency. However, it's perhaps not under the circumstances you imagined or you would have desired.
1: Well. Yes, that had happened, the Seeing Eye Dogs Australia, which again is a, a significant organisation, but it had always had a blind person as its CEO because the blind person actually founded the organisation, that was the Lady Nell Seeing Eye Dogs School. Now,
0: uh, you've spoken about that woman before because she was also important in the development of BCA.
1: She was a very important person in the, in the history of blind people in this country, uh, probably the most misunderstood um, of all of them um, and she probably contributed a fair bit to that herself. She was quite feisty.
0: We need to say, it's Phyllis Gration that we're talking yes,
1: about. Yes, it's the late Phyllis Gration. And uh, she she made a major contribution in the uh, Seeing Eye Dog movement uh, by creating the Lady Nell Seeing Eye Dog School. She actually is attributed with changing a lot of the views about um, dog guides in this country. Um, and she made uh, I think she made uh, people realise that dogs can be more than just a guide. Uh, In some circumstances they are a true companion and they work well with the person. But Phyllis, um, she um, fell out with the people at Lady Nell and there was a change of management there and uh, they got themselves into a bit of trouble and so i'd been retired are we
0: talking about financial difficulties
1: no more perceptional difficulties and um training programs and that um, i so i was approached after i'd been retired about four months to see if i'd come back and take on the role there for a short period of time it was never in busy so i was going to work a long period of time because i really wanted did, did want to retire uh, and so I was appointed and I was given the job of um, tidying the organisation up a bit. It had a lot of property in Malvern and uh, other suburbs so I consolidated all of that and we sold it and um, then we bought another premises out in Kensington and remodelled those more appropriately for the running a seeing eye dog school all we had in Malvern were all houses converted over and that and uh, it just wasn't good it was, in a, it was in a major suburb of Melbourne residential suburb so it, it wasn't a good fit so what we did we moved it all out to Melbourne, and it worked well out there but when I first went there there was a major issue over a dog that had been put down and uh, that was a public relations disaster for a while and uh, I was given the job of tidying that up, which we did, and uh, and we did it by just accepting the fact that uh, we could be criticised for what we'd done, although I knew what we'd done was the right thing to do, but sometimes it's better to say nothing and let it, let it slide, which we did. We had another issue there where um, there was a statue of Phyllis Gration was in the front of the building and it had been removed, which I was not aware of. I must say,
0: and uh, you weren't aware that it had been moved, but no. you, you did know there was a statue. I knew the statue was there. Yeah, yeah. I'd
1: been there when it was established, and uh, so uh, a reporter rang me up and uh, he wanted to come and have a talk to me about this statue, and I said, well, "You no trouble at all." So uh, we arranged the time, and because I went round to have a look at the statue to just <laughs> familiarise myself with it again, and it wasn't there, and. Uh, so I went back and I said, Where's that statue gone? And they said, Oh, the previous director had moved it and uh, it was out the back. Well, I went out the back and I found it out the back. I was just sitting there and uh, or laying on the ground, actually. And I thought, Oh, this is not good. So uh, I got it and had it wrapped up in canvas and put into a storage area. And uh, so when the reporter came because he wanted to talk about this statue, I'm quite sure I was being set up for it. and. Uh, So I just told him where it was and took him around and showed it to him and uh, he said said, why is it out the back here and I said well we're selling all these properties and uh, in the renovation beforehand it was moved and wasn't reset but uh, in the new property it will be in a prominent position He he sort of was a bit sceptical about that and uh, well as it turned out uh, I was right because it is in a prominent position at the Seeing Eye Dog Centre in In Kensington Day, where I set it up and uh, we put it right beside the front door, there's a big window, it looks straight out onto the street. So Phyllis is still there as the founder of that organisation and and, uh, justly so.
0: There's something about your character there in terms of taking on a position that really did look like a poison chalice. And had that have all gone badly, that could have really changed... Your legacy in terms of what, how it was perceived, and what you offered to uh, blind and visually impaired people in Australia, and yet you perceived that you could have that you could make that situation better, that you could turn around what was a difficult and challenging role. What do you think is is it that makes you take on a position like that, and bring with it the confidence that you can? turn a situation around make it make it a better one well this was
1: slightly very different to any other position i'd ever taken before in my life i mean um, i'd been involved in establishing organizations like bca and um, the international blind golf and a number of these organizations i've been involved in the establishment of them but this one was a basically was a very sound organization it had a good reputation i'd had four of their dogs i I knew the the organization i knew the value of the product that they had and uh, it was just in a in a a turmoil at the moment because of some very unfortunate issues over the uh, public relations issues and uh, i think the dispute with phyllis gration that got her out of the organisation was not good I wasn't involved in it but I knew about it and uh, there were a number of issues like that but I I had no doubt in my mind that this organisation was worth um, saving Uh, I believed in what they were doing and so it it wasn't difficult for me to accept it Um, but I knew that there had to be changes and the board was it was good too because they they listened to what I had to say and they they involved themselves and we did make it work Um, I didn't get it financially sustainable before I left but I had it well on the way to doing that we brought in a few new fundraising programs and uh, issues like that but the major problem we were facing was the fact that um, our our trainers weren't accredited internationally and uh, that was something we were working on and uh, it was just about at the point of being um, achieved when I left and it's now been achieved since and it's all good like that but it, it, um, it, it wasn't difficult really to make that decision um, it was a headache or two while we were doing it but if you really think about it you know so long as you're, you're straight with people and you don't try and hide things You'll, you'll find you get there much better, even if it's a, a nasty situation, which we did face with the Gavin issue, uh, and I think it could have been over that statue and a few other issues that were raised from time to time. Um, I found that sometimes to be silent was a good idea, other times speak out, but but the thing was never try to hide anything, if it, if there was a problem, put it out there, and you quite often find that more people come to help you than try to knock you down.
0: I think that brings us to the end of your uh, professional career with blindness agencies. But you mentioned your role with Lions Club and your role has continued pretty much up to the present day. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your time with the Lions. I know you've mentioned it a little bit before, but in more modern times and perhaps some of the more substantial projects that you were involved in. Well, I
1: joined the Lions Club of Moorabbin in 1970, and it came about because there was, a, I was in business at the time, and there was a gadget called a Banks Brailler, which I'd heard about, which was supposed to be a, a portable little braille machine that you could make notes with, and... Uh, it would suit me fine it was lightweight and uh, I could put it in my briefcase and when I was selling I was a salesman uh, I could make notes and um, so the only way you could get these they were produced and run by lions organizations and so I found the Lions Club of and I called the secretary and um, told him about it and he, he had no idea what it was but he said he'll find out for me and he did and he came back to me and said to look we've well, located one of these would you like to come along to a meeting and we'll present it to you and I said yeah I'll do that and I went along to the meeting and uh, I was sitting there and I had this um, banks brother presented to me and uh, with all due respect it was the most useless piece of equipment I think I've ever had it really wasn't very good and it didn't suit what I really needed and um, I don't think it even exists anymore. But while I was at that meeting um, the then president, uh, who's still a friend of mine, John Nankervis told the story, that they were deciding to do a project to help the Red Cross get more blood donors at this and kill the football ground. And uh, so and he told the story about his daughter who was born with a congenital problem at the blood and the number of blood transfusions she had to have and all that before she recovered and i was so impressed with the way he talked and sort of and some of the other things they were doing so when i was going home uh, the secretary was driving me home he said uh, i said to him how impressed i was and he said would you like to come to another meeting and i said well yeah i may uh, is that okay he said oh yes no trouble at all so i went to another meeting and um, and I saw another few projects they were doing which impressed me, things they were doing in the community to help people and uh, I became District Governor Alliance in 1979 for the one You only in for one year and so I was there seventy nine eighty. and uh, my uh, World Assembly was held in Montreal Canada so that was my first overseas trip and uh, I learned a lot over there and when I came back uh, in my role as District Governor I had to work with 79 clubs in a, in Victoria that range from the far east of the state right through to the southern suburbs of Melbourne. The projects that we were really involved in were Lacola Village, which is a children's camp at Lions Run in that district uh, which I was the Governor. We uh, we funded the sewage program for that in a program called Money for Dunnies. And, uh, that was a successful project we were able to do, and right at the end of my time, um, one of our members from a Lions Club in on the Mornington Peninsula contracted leukaemia, and they found at the Alfred Hospital they didn't have a centrifuge machine, which was used to work with people with leukaemia.
0: So it would separate out the white blood cells. Yes. I think. Yeah.
1: yeah. And. Uh, in two weeks we raised $20,000 and in 1980 that was a lot of money, uh, we raised that from the clubs and we put that machine into being and I suppose it's still there today. But my biggest achievement in Lions I think was in my early days when I joined Lions, um, a new project came along it was called Amblyopia which is commonly known as Lazy Eye and it was eye testing. We used the orthoptist from the Ionia Hospital and the Lions Clubs would set up uh, advertise it and the parents of children up to the age of five or six would bring their children along and we'd test them for their, what is commonly known as lazy eye. I think everyone was stunned if I realise that we were averaging about 10% of children who needed a referral. Some of them were uh, easier to correct than others, some were correctable by just wearing a patch over the good eye for some period of time and strengthen the poorer eye, others needed uh, a, a small operation to strengthen the muscles and others just needed um, real ophthalmic care, so that was a great project and I ran that project for three years um, right through the, state, not through the district and uh, we uh, must uh, I don't know but we probably put 10 to 15,000 children through the government then took it over from us and it doesn't exist anymore I mean unfortunately a lot of these things are like that the other project which I'm very proud of with the um, Lions organization was the establishment of the Victorian Lions Foundation which meant that we could set up the first eye bank in Australia in Victoria Uh, the only one in Victoria that's where you can get cornea graphs and uh, that has now been taken over by um, a program called LEAP which is Lions Eye Research Australia and uh, that uh, is still funded by the Victorian Lions Foundation. The other project that we did there in my time was um, working with children with a bionic ear, uh, especially children two to three years of age who would have the bionic ear operation and of course these kids had never heard so they had to learn to speak and we used to fund the speech program that trained these children how to speak and uh, and understand language Uh, they were projects that we were very much involved in we've been involved in many other projects like that but those two in particular and the amblyopia were the ones that I feel the greatest satisfaction with and um, I know that um, there are people today that are benefiting to those and will benefit from those projects till the day they die.
0: And that Bionic Eye project, that the Australian research um, has been instrumental in developing the science around that. So Australia has been important in the development and promotion of the Bionic Ear.
1: The Bionic Ear really was a, an invention of Professor Clark. At the Royal Melbourne at Melbourne University uh, which we helped to fund that program and uh, the the research that was done in that a lot of the base research is being used today in the bionic eye program because it was a, a lot of the study of the brain waves and issues like that that had to be considered and so part of the a lot of that research is, is now being still used again in the Bionic Eye Programme. I'm not really up to date with the Bionic Eye Programme, but um, I, I just know the Bionic Eye Programme has just gone to such an extent, it's incredible.
0: Um, well at the risk of being nationalistic, um, good on Australia for that. Uh, now, the only
1: trouble is that we didn't cash in on it. <laughs> <laughs> We, we research a lot of good things and that, but other people get the benefit of them overseas.
0: Sure, although I, I actually think some Australians bought some shares mm. in the, mm. um, the, the mm. company, the mm. Cochlear Implant mm. Company, mm. and they probably did okay. Yeah. We're, um, we're going to continue on to talk about your ongoing sporting activities with the golf, and um, also your position with the um, Blind Sports Australia David, I know that sports have been an important part of your life and something that you've gained an enormous amount of uh, pleasure uh, out of, and I was wondering if perhaps you could talk us through a little bit about the sports that you've played and enjoyed and what you've got from those sports, but also um, I understand you had a significant involvement with Blind Sports Australia.
1: Yes, um, I've been involved in sport pretty well all of my life. Um, and uh, when I went to Brisbane to live after I was blinded uh, I joined the cricket club up there, the Blind Cricket Club and uh, that started a a long period of being involved in that area. I found that uh, playing team sports has been a very important part of my development as a person and also in some of my leadership qualities When you're part of a team you sort of are part of a team and if you become one of the leaders of that team you you learn particular skills and after I came to live in Victoria I also became more involved in the administration of blind cricket both at the state and the national level so it was a very important part of my early training in leadership and uh, working with other people in an administrative way.
0: Um, can I get you to explain just a little bit about the mechanics of blind cricket? For the people who don't know, how does it work?
1: Well, it works a lot different now to what it did when I played the game. Uh, we used to have a cane ball, which a uh, woven cane with some bottle tops in it and a bit of lead to make the weight. We bowled underarm. You only had one batsman in at a time and you had the uh, totally blind and the partially sighted were the two main ingredients um, we had restrictions on the number of runs you could or not the number of runs the number of balls you could face and uh, things like that because of some people with a really good sight would could stay there all day so we had those but now it's changed dramatically now that they've gone international they have a different ball it's a, it's a, a manufactured ball now, it's a type of plastic and it uh, does, still has a rattle but they have two batsmen at a time now and uh, they still bowl underarm and uh, there's, it's a different game to what we played but it's a more of an international game now and it's more uh, more like a sighted cricket but um, I think uh, it's good for the better ones with vision impairment or partial sight than it is for those that have got the less sight.
0: Alrighty, so there's winners and losers. So sorry, you were talking about um, the role blind cricket and other sport has played in your life?
1: Well, as I said, I I learnt to be part of a team, you learnt leadership in that team if you took responsibility um, in both the on-field and off-field. When you're running the association, I was chairman of the Victorian Blind Cricket Association for a period of time, and then I was chairman of the Australian Blind Cricket Association for a period of time, and in both those roles, you you learnt to work with other people and um, how to manage um, funds, administration of um, activities such as drawers and fixtures, uh, even disciplines. We had to do that occasionally, so there was a lot of a big learning curve there, and it was part of my early development. After blind cricket I sort of retired from that for a while while my children were younger and uh, we took up uh, fishing as more of a hobby rather than a sport I suppose by moving down to Phillip Island for our holidays and things like that. And then later on I became involved in golf for blind people, that was in 1988. Um, we, I some, a very good friend of ours, Alan Nusky has now passed away arrange a trip up to Rich River and uh, to have a game of golf. Uh, I'd never played golf in my life and uh, I said it to a good friend of mine uh, we'd like to go and they said yeah we'll go so we went up there and as they, they say the rest is history. I got hooked on the game and have been involved ever since.
0: Now again can I interrupt you just talk us through the mechanics of how a blind person plays golf.
1: Well There are international rules under the uh, R&A, the Royal and Ancient um, Golf Club of St Andrews and the American Golf Association. They they have rules now for people with disabilities. In the case of uh, blind or vision impaired golfers, the only real significant rule change is that we're allowed to ground our club in a bunker or a hazard. Other than that, uh, it's basically the same game. So what we do is we have a caddy and that caddy role is to set the player up uh, give the player information on what's involved in front of them, what what shot they should be playing and then the blind person has to hit the ball Uh, It's not as difficult as it sounds because in actual fact if your swing is right you should be able to hit the ball Um, and that's what that's how we work it, that you um, you must have a, a reasonably good technique. The more difficult part of the game is the short part of the game. Um, hitting the ball off a tee is not that difficult. Hitting it straight is probably a little bit more difficult. But even that is something that training and, uh, and good practice can help. But the short game when you have to chip onto a green and it's less than say 60-70 meters, if it's 20 meters, 30 meters, whatever, judging that distance and how hard hit that ball is the the more difficult part of the game. And then once you're on the green with the putting, well of course the, the caddy is lining you up all the time, you must remember that, and I walk to the hole. So I can feel the gradient, not so much the slope either way, but I want to know whether it's uphill or downhill. It's my caddy's job to work out the line of the putt. It's my role to work out how hard to hit the ball. So that's how we work the game.
0: Okay. Now, when I visited your apartment, Mm. I saw trophies all over the place and it looked to me like they'd come from all around the world. So it, it seems to me that not only has golf been a big part of your life, uh, but also it's taken you all over the place.
1: It has. I was, um, when I finished my term as president of the World Blind Union, I went to Japan for a tournament in 1996. And Dr. Hander, who sponsors Blind Golf Worldwide, he's a Japanese philanthropist, um, he invited me to set up an international body because he was funding golf groups in various parts of the world as a sponsor and he wanted to centralize that funding into some central organization so seeing that i'd been president of the world blind union he approached me to set up the international blind golf association and along with a, with two-sided people howard langie and Hiromi fujimoto howard Langey was from perth in western australia and uh, Romy was from Japan they both were um, involved with Dr Hander in other ways because of his commitment to businesses in Australia. Uh, We uh, actually convened a meeting in Perth of six countries and that was England, Scotland, Canada, the US, Japan and Australia in 1997 and we put together a constitution to set up the International Blind Golf Association which we had a meeting in Orlando in 1998 where it was officially established and I think we started off with probably eight countries it's now played in seventeen countries officially and it is played in other countries unofficially so um, the International Blind Golf, I was involved in that um, I I went didn't go on the board in 1998, I'd had enough by then. Uh, so I took a two year break and then I came back in the year um, 2000 and I stayed on that board until 2012. The last eight year the first four years of that, I was secretary treasurer and the last eight years I was president.
0: And I gather from you that there's also ru- routinely uh, competitions played around the various capital cities of Australia
1: we have uh, five major tournaments in Australia a year yes we have six major tournaments in Australia There's um, the state tournaments in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and Western Australia we have a National Stapleford Championship in Adelaide each year and each year alternating around the country we have an Australian uh, title so that's the Australian but in Victoria we play once a month as a group But most of our golfers do play in other clubs um, and the normal golf clubs and uh, that. So it's a game that's quite inclusive in that regard that you can play under the rules of uh, the R&A in any competition anywhere. So we've been able to do that. And uh, we established the Blind Golf Australia in uh, 1991 and uh, it's been quite successful ever since.
0: I presume Not only is it something that you get uh, enjoyment from, but it's also a way of making and maintaining friends.
1: It is very much so. And you mentioned the international part of it. Well, because of my involvement with the international blind golf, I've played golf now in many parts of the world and uh, USA, Canada, Scotland, Ireland, England, Italy um, and Japan, of course, Singapore and uh, Australia and it's, it's been very good, I've got friends all over the world which I had from the World Blind Union to start with but this is another group of friends that I have that um, that you don't talk to very often but with Skype and that every now and again uh, an email comes through I'm going to be on the air tomorrow and you have a chat to them then uh, and you hear what's going on around the world in blind golf and uh, it's very interesting and uh, it's something I've got a lot of pleasure out of I must admit. Um, It does two things, one it's a a sport which I enjoy, it's another team sport because your caddy and yourself are a team, Uh, we have to work together as a team otherwise it just will not work for you. But it's good for exercise, you're out in the open air and um, you know it's nice to be walking around an open field and the birds are playing uh, their songs and being happy and uh, the only thing that's wrong sometimes is the golf but uh, most of the time it's quite good and uh, we enjoy it and uh, i think it's probably a good way of getting a bit of frustration out of the system too at times but uh, other than that no it's a great game and i thoroughly enjoy it and um uh, and I've made a lot of friends through it, and I do a lot of travel with it.
0: I think maybe it resolves and creates frustration in equal measure. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's not very often within a memoir that we have some breaking news, but we do. David, you were telling me about an award that you've recently received in respect of your involvement in uh, uh, blind golf.
1: Yes, the International Blind Golf Association, um uh, made me a life member of the the association this year. I'm only the third person in in the history of the organization to receive that honor and uh, I'm the first vision impaired person to receive it and uh, Howard Lange and um, Hiromi Fujimoto were the other two and they were really great people in helping set the organization up and I feel very privileged to be um, added to their number.
0: Mm -hmm. Well congratulations it's an outstanding achievement Um, Now, we were going to go on and talk about your role as a grandfather because we're moving on to a stage of your life where your children are old enough to have children and your personal commitments, particularly your, um, your working commitments, are a little less intense and you're a little more able to enjoy time with the children. So I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about this period of your life with your grandchildren and your opportunity with Jess to uh, to enjoy that part of uh, that part of life.
1: That's very true. Um, I've been um, I retired when my grandchildren were probably um, ranging between four and seven years of age, and uh, it was a, a great pleasure actually to be part of their growing up. It's something I realized uh, afterwards that I missed a fair bit with my own children because well during that period of their lives, those years um, they uh, I was running a business and uh, we were virtually six days a week and from dawn to dark sort of thing and uh, so you do miss out a lot on your own children and uh, Jess had the responsibility of raising those and we were fortunate enough that she didn't have to go to work at that time and so she was able to do that work uh, but with the grandchildren uh, again we were very fortunate that um, we we could have them they lived near us fortunately uh, so they had many a over and we took them on holidays sometimes to with away with us and uh, they had, we had holidays with them and their families so it was a very good part of our life and a very important part i i enjoyed going to pick them up from school and bringing them home when they were littleies and uh, hearing about their day and what the big issues of the day whether mary was talking to me or not and, and uh, those things that little children get involved in but no it was a great part and it still is a great part they're now uh, 21 20 and 18 and uh, the eldest one is a very keen fisherman. Which so tell
0: I, us who is it that we're talking about how many and who are they? Well
1: there's three of them Adam Sylvia, Adam, Oliver and Hilary. Adam's the eldest uh, he's my eldest son's son. Uh, he's the one who's a very keen fisherman and um, all the years I went fishing and never caught a snapper and he's got about four already which I find quite frustrating actually but uh, he, he thoroughly enjoys that and he's very good at it. Um, Hilary is the, my granddaughter, the only granddaughter we have. Um, she's one of Sylvie's two children. She's just come back after two years in Europe, uh, touring around, working over there, and uh, she's brought back a partner with her and they're very happy and uh, it's great to have her back and I enjoyed meeting with her when we travelled overseas earlier in the year. Uh, she's a very... Great little girl, I think, and uh, very biased, I suppose I am. But uh, you know, we've we've enjoyed her, and then of course Oliver, the youngest, he's eighteen, and uh, he's the one we probably had more to do with because. Um, he he had difficulty at kindergarten so he preferred to be with granny uh, and going around finding all the hot chocolate shops around melbourne i I think think. (laughs) i would as well david (laughs) rather than going to kindergarten and uh yeah so he spent a lot of time with us and um, being the youngest i suppose we we spent more time with him and he had a lot of sleepovers at our place in their days but now they're on a farm down in Gippsland, and we we still see them but not as often as we did of course they're teenagers now they're getting on with their own lives and um, but it's a very pleasant part of my life that i look back on as my involvement with both with the the children and with the grandchildren
0: as we start to come to a close with today's episode we were going to deal with another recent event, which has probably brought you back into the advocacy movement and the management within that movement in a way that you wouldn't have foreseen. That was changes to funding for Blind Citizens Australia and difficulties that that created for that organisation. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. In
1: 1995, um, the late Hugh Jeffrey and I set up the Jeffrey Blythe Foundation and uh, JBF as we call it. Uh, its sole role was to support BCA in a time when, if funding did to dry up, and we actually wanted to make BCA a very independent organisation. Um, BCA did receive quite substantial funding from several sources, but one of those was the Federal Government. And unfortunately, two years ago, the Federal Government decided to stop funding individual organisations of people with disabilities in favour of a multi-disability funded organisation centrally based in New South Wales. So that meant that uh, Blind Citizens Australia had a very significant shortfall in its funding so the JBF we talked to BCA about that and we were able to um, increase our donation to them to about $50,000 a year but now we're um, trying to expand that even more and uh, so we're looking at um, expanding the JBF into a more of a national organisation rather than having just been Victorian really uh, and uh, seeing if we can attract funds that are sitting dormant in accounts around in names of small organisations uh, and see if we can get all that together to try and make BCA financially independent because if we can do that, I, I believe that um, we will, BCA will survive. If we can't do that, I, I really feel that BCA may have to make some major changes in the way it operates. And that might not, not necessarily be a good thing for blind people.
0: Do you think that would be likely an amalgamation of Blind Citizens Australia into a more broad-based disability advocacy organisation?
1: Yes I think it would and um, I believe there are disadvantages for blind people in that area. Um, the The uniqueness of various disabilities is not recognised by, by a lot of people. Uh, simple things like a step or a, an open space has different connotations to different people with disabilities. Uh, a step is not a problem for a blind person, but it is for a person in a wheelchair or with ambitly problems. Uh, whereas an open space is quite a good thing for a person in a wheelchair, but it's not a good thing for blind people, unless there are wayfinders. So there are major differences in the way that uh, we we are able to access the community, and I think there is a, a definite need for each of those specific needs to be addressed by people who are more qualified and more able to identify what they are and do try and remedy them and that means there's got to be a lot of compromise and uh, working together to do these things so I'm not against multi-disability as a, a collective of an association but I would like it to be of a collective of individual disability groups like BCA and other organisations there are, uh, rather than one big conglomerate trying to do all, because I don't believe one size does fit all. Uh, I know it doesn't.
0: Mm-hmm. The, the changes to BCA, the, the loss of funding, and the crisis that that created for the organisation, that brought you back onto the board for a period of time. I imagine you didn't foresee yourself going back on the board of Blind Citizens Australia. And what, what was your role there in terms of trying to stabilise and secure the organisation from an administrative point of view?
1: No, uh, the loss of funding wasn't the reason I went back on the board. They hadn't lost that funding then. I think we, uh, like a lot of organisations, BCA lost its way um, and uh, it got itself into a, a bit of a financial mess mainly because it listened to some people that it shouldn't have and they weren't vision impaired people and uh, they the office got dominated by a group of people uh, we um, saw there was a major problem um, PCA had a major loss for the first time in its history at the annual meeting and uh, several of us were quite concerned about that and so uh, after some negotiation we decided well maybe we did have to re- reestablish the organization so i stood for, they was a, a i stood for president and was elected uh, along with a new group of people that we put on the board and we re looked at the finances and realized that there was a, a serious uh, discrepancy in the way that the funding of the organization was and uh, we had commitments that were totally unable for us to fulfill with the government contract that we had Um, so it was a matter of renegotiating that and uh, I I appointed a new CEO Robin Gale and uh, along with Robin we negotiated uh, with the government to reduce the the contract from $45,000 down to $20,000 and uh, that that gave us a, a bit of breathing space. We did a few other measures to stabilise the funding. We still had our government funding and we had funding from Vision Australia so we had to talk about that. We had funding from our members, uh, we had a PAC program and we had an annual appeal. We were up front with the members we told them that the facts uh, we sent out an appeal letter and we had probably the biggest uh, donation response ever because the members did respond and i think this always happens if you keep people informed and you tell them the truth whether it's good or bad and you you show them where, what you're trying to do to redress the situation and we were able to do that I made a commitment that I'd be there for three years. I didn't want to do it much longer because um, I still believe that um, my contribution to VCA was done in the early days and um, it, you know, I was there at a the time. Um, we need different people with different ideas now to run the organisation. They're um, much more uh, affe with new regulations than I am. and. Uh, also, I believe it's, it's a good thing to move on anyway and make room. Change is not necessarily always for the better, but very rarely is it a disadvantage.
0: All righty, David. Well, we've brought BCA back from a near-death experience. Mm. And, uh, and whilst it sounds like there are ongoing threats mm. and risks mm. to BCA, the situation is at least comparatively stable. So perhaps that's a good point for us to finish for this episode and uh, then to, to pick up with what will be the final episode, uh, episode nine. <laughs>